Welcome everyone to the College Parent Podcast. My name is Callie Edwards and I want to thank you for joining us. Before we get started, I want to inform listeners that this episode does discuss eating habits and diet culture for college students. So if that conversation is difficult or triggering for you, I encourage you to listen with caution. Today, I will be interviewing Cara Miller, a campus dietitian for Sodexo Dining in Nashville area universities, and Laura Deneen, a licensed professional counselor and certified eating disorder specialist in Nashville, Tennessee. We will be discussing disordered eating in the college setting, the best ways to support students experiencing this, and additional resources for parents and students. So let's go ahead and dive in. Welcome Cara and Laura to the College Parent Podcast. So to get us started, could you two lay a foundation of how prevalent and present disordered eating is amongst college students? I think this is an excellent question. This is Cara. Um, I'm joined by Laura, and I absolutely love working with Laura. We've worked together for a while now. We started doing a um, little intro class uh, during National Eating Disorder Awareness Week almost Five years ago, I think. So that's pretty crazy. Um, But yeah, going to the question about the statistics and the prevalence, I do think that it is really high. Even one study showed that greater than 90% of women admitted to having their weight controlled through dieting, which can definitely be a precursor to eating disorders um, and can lead to one in four. Would you say that's right? Laura, one in four. Yeah. Develop. So the statistic is that um, one in four people that go on a di- on a diet will develop an eating disorder um, because of that um, restrictive behavior. And so, how many would you say have eating disorder um, among college age students? What do you think that prevalence would might be? So, if you Google this, um, the stat is um, about twenty percent. So that's one in five college age students. I actually think that is a really low statistic. Um, I think that there are a lot of people that don't report their behaviors. There are a lot of people that don't know that they have an eating disorder. And then there's a lot of people who also have shame um, just around the behaviors that are going on. And so they're not going to report those. So my guess would be that it's closer to two, two and a half out of five um, versus one out of five college students. And I think I could mirror that probably. I don't have the national statistics, but just in counseling college-age students, I would say that close to half students I would refer out for some form of counseling or further screening. I don't treat eating disorder, students with eating disorders, but um, I'm very frequently referring out to additional counseling services. Yeah, and it's such a specialized niche within both the um, nutrition world and the therapy world. I think that's important. Yes, we want the experts. Oh, you're sweet. (laughs) Right back at you. I love working with you. (laughs) So, Laura, you mentioned um, recognizing eating disorders and how many students, you know, don't. Um, So to follow up on that, what are some ways to recognize an eating disorder and what signs are visible for those in the support role? Yes. Okay. That is a great question. Um, There's so many things. So just a couple of clinical words because I am a therapist. So um, some of the main clinical words we use as eating disorder specialists, so restriction. So that um, can look like skipping meals. It can look like cutting out variety and quantity. And so if you notice your child not eating or maybe not eating appropriate amounts of food, that that's restriction. And then a couple other behaviors that are pretty prevalent in people with eating disorders involve binging and then purging. So binging is eating large amounts of food in a short amount of time and feeling shame about that and then purging. So that can look like compulsive exercise. It can look like self-induced vomiting. It can also look like laxative misuse. So those are kind of the clinical terms. A couple other, you know, pieces to be aware of if a friend is 
leaving and going to the bathroom and, you know, that would might be a sign of purging. Not wanting to eat out socially can also just be a red flag for eating disorder behaviors. Talk about food and about one's body is also really prevalent amongst um, those diagnosed with eating disorders. Cara, what would you Yeah, I think one of the things that I see the most is isolation during meals. So Mm kind of like what you alluded to, but just not wanting to eat with friends, um, eating alone frequently. You mentioned too, but being really conscious or overly concerned about body image or what's on people's plates, um, themselves or others. Yeah. Yeah. Really uh, like high and heightened awareness yeah. of themselves, their body image or foods, even healthy foods. Sure. We'll talk about that now too. Yeah. Or an overemphasis mm-hmm. on perceived healthy foods. So I practice from an all foods fit yeah. paradigm. And basically that means that um, their food is not morally better than another food. And so when you have a child that maybe puts more value on an apple and mm-hmm. chooses that over a donut, if everyone else is eating a donut, like that might be problematic behavior. Yes. A high tendency of good and bad food. Yes. Yep. Yes. Or I was good today because I ate blah, blah, blah. Or right. I was bad today because I ate Right. Yeah. Another sign that we can look for too is just body checking behaviors or body hiding behaviors. So that looks like, you know, just checking a lot in the mirror, seeking reassurance over like, am I okay? Does my, do I look okay? And then the hiding behaviors. So oftentimes there's a lot of hiding that goes on and that can look like wearing oversized clothing or clothing that doesn't fit. Um, And that's because of the amount of shame that people um, often experience if they have an eating disorder. Another one that I've seen, and maybe you can talk more about this, but um, because I work with a lot of students with food allergies, I also get a lot of students that are coming in with stomach upset or a lot of GI distress. um, And I highly recommend seeing an allergy specialist or a gastroenterologist, making sure that we make sure all the medical diagnoses are checked out and that they really are healthy. But beyond that, if we can't figure out um, what might be going on, sometimes I have found that it is due to under eating or not consuming enough. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's a difference too. And, you know, I'm not a dietitian and I share that with all of my clients and, um, all of my colleagues and friends. So I don't, I don't give, um, advice or recommendations around the food piece, but what I do know as an eating disorder specialist is that there is a a difference between, you know, an intolerance versus an allergy. And so what we recommend at my practice anchored is having a evidence-based allergen test because oftentimes people with eating disorders will, will say, Oh, I'm allergic to this, but there's maybe there they maybe haven't had a medical test for that, and so we actually recommend that, and that can be a great way to discern. Okay, you know, is is this a true allergy or is this more the eating disorder behavior going on? I also will just add real quick. A lot of times, people with anxiety and depression experience mm-hmm. gastrointestinal issues, yes, very much. and so you know, if we can really work on the mental health portion of of that some of that will actually hopefully work itself out. And so by setting boundaries, by understanding our emotions, by having hard conversations, I've seen a lot of those issues maybe not completely go away, but definitely like decrease the amount of distress that those clients are experiencing. Yes, absolutely. And just from a dietitian perspective, I never recommend eliminating whole groups of food unless it's medically necessary because of that allergy test, something that is diagnosable. Right. So how would you both suggest supporting a student experiencing disordered eating from afar as parents are navigating, assisting their students, but not being overly involved? Parents 
often can be critical from a distance. And one of the pieces of advice actually you gave me, Laura, is just to use the word notice. Instead of um, judging or coming across strong with strong comments, trying to notice a behavior and come at it out of love. And I think when I talk with college-age students, um, one of the biggest things that they're feeling, um, and this isn't everyone, but some of the words that I've heard is that they feel like they're being judged for their bodies or their food choices or their lack of something and not maybe fully seen or fully appreciated for who they are and that the conversation constantly or even just periodically comes back to food or body image when they want to be known for something other than their food choices, good or bad, Um, going back to that moral thing. But a lot of families say, oh, you're being good today. You're just having broccoli and chicken. Good for you. Or, oh my gosh, this must not be a good day, you know, having donuts with a friend or something. So I think kind of taking that judgment or critical piece out of it and maybe noticing behaviors more saying like I've noticed you're not eating with your peers or how are you feeling okay or how are you doing socially or kind of taking the conversations to other things because our food often revolves around culture and community and we take that out of it I think we lose a lot of the joy that comes around food as well sure Totally agree. Yeah. One thing that I'll add to that's just really important is the psychoeducation piece. And so I think that if your child has disordered eating or has been diagnosed with an eating disorder, it's really important to get your own support as a parent. And psychoeducation is basically like, hey, what is an eating disorder and how do I support my loved one in, in getting healing from this. At my practice, we practice from a full recovery um, modality, and basically that means that we don't believe that people have to suffer for the rest of their lives with disordered eating. And so I'm all about treatment, whether that's at an outpatient level of care or a higher level of care. There's a lot of research that shows great outcomes for people that that go to treatment and that get the appropriate specialized care. So in terms of parental support, I think I think it's tricky. There is a lot of sensitivity around food and body image, and we absolutely want to honor that. And so, you know, my job as a therapist that specializes in eating disorders is kind of finding that balance between, okay, how can I be sensitive and how can I validate this client? And also how can I provide them with the information that engaging in this behavior is not ultimately going to lead them to having the quality of life that they want. So that's that's a, typically a message we send to parents too. I think oftentimes parents are afraid of saying the wrong thing as well. Yeah. And my encouragement, at least to families that we work with at Anchor, is to check it out with the client. And so instead of walking around the issue, I encourage families to practice healthy communication of like, Hey, teaching the client, like, hey, if that bothers me, speaking up and using their voice and a parent being receptive to hearing that too. Yeah. Um, one of the students that I was working with, she would go home for winter breaks and um, her mom would say something like, oh, geez, it looks like you're eating like your brothers or, oh my goodness, I can't believe you're having that extra portion. You must really like those mashed potatoes or something. And the student was able to even say, you know what? I'm eating what's right for my body. I'm seeing a dietitian and this portion size is okay for me. And sometimes I really like the portion size or whatever. It doesn't need to be something critical every time. And that parent was then able to apologize. And we can't always expect an apology, but I do think it was very mindful of the parent to acknowledge what the student was feeling and be able to change their behavior as well. Totally. Absolutely. And it sounds like that parent was receptive to the feedback, which I think having that posture of humility of like, hey, if I don't 
know this. It's okay to ask and it's okay to receive that feedback. Um, but yeah, I, I very much practice from a, a perspective of like, hey, if you are struggling with anything at all around food or your body, you deserve appropriate care. It really doesn't matter to me. I mean, it matters, but not in the sense of like whether you deserve the care. So I think if you've had any negative thoughts around food or your body, you deserve to have a professional to to share those with and to get some some good treatment. And parents often want their kids to be happy and healthy, right? I don't know. I'm a mom. I want my kids to be happy and healthy, right? What do you want for your kids? Happy and healthy. And I do think that some of that comes from food. It comes from community. It comes with things they learn in college, the whole experience. It comes with um, moving their bodies in ways that feels good to them and not overdoing it or underdoing it because of judgment or perceived expectations. And then we also want their emotional well-being, which is what you're alluding to. Totally. Yeah, and I think what I found, at least in my practice, is there's often this fear around the term eating disorder. And I think just as we kind of are just talking about this and dissecting this today, I think it's really important. So we actually, we do diagnose in my practice, and the reason being is that we can actually treat it. And so I think for parents just to hear in this time today that it's it's, it's 100% treatable, there's good treatment out there, and the earlier the intervention, actually the better outcomes. And so I know it can feel really scary talking about these things, but I also feel like there is treatment available, and it's there's a lot of hope too for for the recovery process. Yeah. And treatment is individualized, right? So there isn't one size fits all treatment. And when I've talked with some students, they're really nervous about telling their parents because they don't want to scare them or they are afraid that they might go into a inpatient treatment center, which is sometimes warranted, but I do think it is, you know, individualized. So some people need different levels of treatment and care. Some can do it outpatient. Some need inpatient. Some need, you know, a couple times a week or Whatever, you can speak to that a little bit more. But I think sometimes we see here, oh, gosh, eating disorder. Now they have to go away for three months or something. Sure. And that's not always the case. You know, everyone's treatment plan is different. It's individualized. Just like when you go to the doctor for a heart condition, everyone's treatment plan is individualized. The same is true with eating disorders. Absolutely. Yep. And so, you know, I work in an outpatient setting. So that looks like clients typically coming to us once a week until at least behaviors are reduced. And then like Cara's talking about, yeah, there's all different levels of care and yeah, I think that's that's great to have that specialized treatment for clients. So in addition to supporting from afar, what are y'all's recommendations on how to best support students when they're home during breaks, which I know... Cara, you mentioned a little bit. Yeah, maybe you can talk a little bit more about that, Laura. But one of my the students' biggest fears are going home either for winter break or for summer break. So I sometimes hear them say that they're getting you know nervous to go home because of comments that a family member will make. Something might be hard at home, not always food-wise. Other things, too, make it hard to go home. And sometimes they do feel relieved to go home. So maybe sometimes school is the stressor. But I don't know if you have any tips for parents when students are home either on winter break or summer break? Sure, absolutely. So back to kind of what I shared earlier, I think the psychoeducation piece is really important. And so I think that if we have awareness around what diet culture is and how it impacts us, knowledge is is great. And so I encourage any college student or really anyone who's nervous about going home or, or being with a loved one to really share their knowledge that they have because if we don't know, we can't do better, Sure. right? And so that's a big part of the work in in healing and eating disorder is like, hey, let let's build this awareness, let's build this support, mm-hmm. and then we can act differently. Sorry, well, I was just going to say, do you have any resources for that? Whether it's for the students or the parents, do you have certain things sure. that you recommend people to learn more about? Sure. It? 
Yeah. And so there's a couple great resources. So the National Eating Disorder Awareness Association or the National, is it the, the NIDA website is mm-hmm. a great resource for parents. I also love the book Anti-Diet that's written by Christy yes. Harrison. She's dietitian. a dietitian. <laughs> yes. Shout out to all the amazing dietitians. Yes. She's a dietitian. Yeah. Um, I also think there's a couple great Instagrams. Tiffany Rowe is great. Jennifer Rowland is great. I'm not as big time on Instagram, but my Instagram is Laura Deneen Counselor, and I do a lot of like psychoeducation on myths around eating disorders. And then the tricky part, too, that I just want to name is that a lot of clients with eating disorders have family members that have some form of disordered eating. And so it's like, hey, how do I go home and nourish myself and advocate for myself, even if my mom is engaging in this disordered behavior? So it's really building in therapy. What we really work on is building our sense of self so that even if a family member is engaging in these behaviors that maybe aren't great and are unhealthy, that the client can still advocate for themselves and can still get their needs met both emotionally and physical. Mm -hmm. Do you think there's any like for sure don'ts for parents, like words or phrases or something? I know it's client specific, but yeah. I mean, generally speaking, I do not think it's ever helpful for someone to comment on body size or weight. So that is kind of across the board. Whether someone is in a larger body, whether someone is restoring weight, whatever it is, it it, it never ends well. And it, and the the message that is received is, hey, the most important part about you is your body. Mm-hmm. And so I think really, really working on that piece of diet culture of like, hey, even if you have an urge or even if you do notice something, like keep it to yourself. There's so many other things that we can talk about. Mm -hmm. Like, hey, I heard that you got this great internship. Like, tell me more about it. Or do you know how many shows are on Netflix that you could talk about? Yes. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Or like, tell me about your dog. I'm a huge animal lover. So like, I'm always showing people pictures of Louie and like, tell me about your dog. Tell me about your husband. Like, how's he doing with his new job? Right. So like, There are so many things that we can really talk about that have nothing to do with appearance. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a general rule of thumb. The food piece is a little trickier. I discourage parents from being what we call the food police. So micromanaging food, especially for college students, they're adults, right? And so it's kind of finding this balance of how do you, if if your student is struggling to eat, if they're struggling with restriction or if they're struggling with binging, what are parameters you set up as a family that are agreed upon both between the student and the parent? So I think healthy communication and it's nuanced for each family, but I think mm-hmm. healthy communication helps foster that, if that Absolutely. makes sense. Yeah, sure. Definitely does. I really love how you guys have both like highlighted how important communication and hope is. I know in my experience, I ju- all I wanted to do was talk about what I was going through, and I didn't know how. And so I didn't have hope because I was like in the middle of my own problem. And so I didn't, until sure. I started talking about it and, and got help. Like it just was, you know, in the spiral. So. Sure, totally. And I can speak to that personally. So mm-hmm. I am recovered from an eating disorder and got amazing treatment actually in Nashville a while back. And then, yeah, I'm so thankful mm-hmm. for my treatment team and so thankful. I, I feel like they gave me a gift that I can never repay them for. And, and so I'm trying to give back the best way I know how by through anchored counseling. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of hope. And I think that that's so important for parents and family members to know And what I encourage is like, let's just rip off the band-aid, right? Mm -hmm. Like we just got to do the work and it's messy and we're in the trenches for a while and it will get better. And so what we share with clients and with parents of of college age kids is like, hey, we're going to be in the trenches. We're going to, this is going to be messy. And there is a light at the end of the tunnel. You're in a tunnel, you're not in a cave. And that's a 
metaphor that I use pretty frequently with with families of like, hey, there is a there is an end to this, but we got to put in the work Mm -hmm. Um, because it is work. It's not going to go away. It's not going to get better without appropriate treatment. So as we wrap up this episode, I want to thank Cara Miller and Laura Deneen for taking the time to be guests on our show. If you want to learn more, check out our other The College Parent Podcast episodes on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Have a great day and we will see you next time.